We don't know why this happened. We don't understand it. it it's beyond comprehension. A polarizing figure gunned down at his workplace. The death of Reputaman Singh Malik, a central figure in the Air India bombing investigation, long after his acquittal. Another Lytton wildfire. One year after the village was virtually destroyed, a new fire is threatening what's left. And a building collapse sends two people to hospital. What might have caused it? You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. The dramatic daylight murder of Raputaman Singh Malik has sent shockwaves through the community. Malik was gunned down outside his clothing business in Surrey. A deeply polarizing figure best known for his alleged involvement and subsequent acquittal in the Air India terrorist bombing in 1985. Paul Johnson joins us now with what we've learned about his final moments and why Malik had as many supporters as he did enemies. So Malik was on his way to his workplace this morning at the business he owned in this business park here in Newton. He arrived alone. It was approximately 9.30 when he was shot in his car in the parking lot. There was an effort to try and revive him. It was not successful and he was pronounced dead here at the scene. There was a broken window. He was lying in the car. There was three gunshots. Only one, uh, one hit on the neck, that's it and I just took him out, he was alive. I waited for like 10, 15 minutes, then the cops came, no ambulance showed up. It was, he was still alive, but that's it. Now the killer, or killers, appear to have fled in a getaway car that was found torched a few blocks away. Very few details so far from the RCMP, other than they believe this was a targeted killing. Malik is very well known in the Sikh community as a co-founder of the Khalsa Credit Union and Khalsa Schools. Most Canadians, though, know him as the man who was tried and ultimately acquitted for the Air India bombings of 1985, still Canada's worst ever terror attack. Malik's son spoke with us today, though, and they told us that to them, he was obviously much more than the man who was tried for the Air India attacks. The bigger part of his life was his community, his family, and the legacy he's left with Khalsa Schools, Khalsa Credit Union, five kids, eight grandkids. I mean, that's his, that's his legacy. And, and that's my dad's message to us the whole time has been, you know, do well in school, be successful, be part of Canadian culture but at the same time maintain your identity. You can do that in Canada, it's a multicultural society. You can keep your turban, you can have your beard. So there is rampant speculation about the motive behind this killing, both from the many people who turned up here this morning who knew him or knew of him and spoke to us and no doubt people around the world. We have to stress though at this point, we haven't heard anything from the RCMP about the motive. And it's worth noting that when I spoke to Malik's son, earlier today we talked about this and he said that in recent years his father wasn't fearing for his life and it's also worth noting that when he came to work this morning he was by himself not really the profile of somebody who was fearful that there could be an imminent attack on their life that's the latest from here in newton now back to you 
All right, thanks for that. Paul Johnson reporting in Surrey for us. Now, IHIT will hold a press conference with the very latest on the Malik shooting on Friday morning at 10 a.m. We will bring you that briefing live when it happens on BC One. Now, of course, for Putaman Singh Malik was a divisive figure, a successful businessman and leader in the community and also vilified by many. You know, what comes to mind, uh, what came to my mind was that some people might think it's justice because of the Air India, because the court at the end did say to Mr. Malik and Mr. Bargri that uh, don't think that uh, you haven't committed this offense. It's just that Crown and the police haven't been able to prove it. That's what your acquittal means. Um, so, you know, I, I think the Air India families would have perhaps preferred a trial and a conviction and pr- imprisonment for Mr. Um, um, for Mr. Malik and Mr. Bagri. What I believe is a bigger tragedy is those who want justice, those who deserve justice, know that somebody who knew something has now been killed. He left with his secrets. That is the bigger story. That is the bigger message for me today, and that saddens me. 331 people died. Uh, 331 families forever changed. And to this day, we have not brought people to justice. Fire crews are battling a new wildfire near the village of Lytton. Jordan Armstrong is live in studio with us now. Jordan, an unbelievable development given we just marked the first anniversary of the fire that destroyed the village last year. That's right, Chris. Just two weeks ago, we marked that anniversary, and now this. The fire was first noticed over the noon hour, about 1245 today, and it is burning just across the Fraser River from the town site near the Lytton Ferry, if you're familiar with the area. The B.C. Wildfire Service pinpoints it just above the Lytton First Nation. Late this afternoon, there was a briefing, and here's the latest information from that. At last word, the blaze was at least 75 hectares in size and growing at what's being described as a moderate pace due to gusting winds. Three structures, don't know yet if that's homes or perhaps outbuildings, may have been destroyed, according to officials. About nine people have been ordered to leave their properties, and there are also several evacuation alerts in place as well. The fire, as you can see in the This video is highly visible from Highway 1, Lytton and surrounding communities. Here's more from the emergency briefing a couple of hours ago. So currently, the BC Wildfire Service has four initial attack crews on site with two unit crews as well. And they're responding with the support of helicopters and air tankers. Crews will continue to work through the evening and overnight as required. The RCMP and local fire department are also responding to this fire. Gusting, gusting winds in the area this afternoon are impacting the fire behavior and crews in the, uh, on the air and in the ground are seeing and uh, observing moderate fire rates of spread. Emergency support services are available for people who have been forced to evacuate. Supports include food, lodging, clothing, and may be provided for up to 72 hours or until their evacuation order has been rescinded. We understand people are registered through the online evacuee registration tool that EMBC has provided communities. And the most important thing that the public can do right now is to prepare yourself and your family for any potential fires in your areas. And then please avoid any and all activity that may result in a wildfire. 
So indeed, a shocking and traumatic development for the Lytton community. As you know, two people died and much of the community was destroyed. And last year's inferno, work to rebuild had only just begun. And residents, most of them anyways, remain out of their homes. Again, this fire is burning just under two kilometers away from the village. We understand ground access for the firefighters is quite difficult right now. There aren't a lot of roads in this particular area. And the Lytton Ferry, which in normal circumstances could be used to access the flames on the other side of the river isn't running tonight due to high water levels on the Fraser Chris. Mm, we know those crews are doing everything they can and hope for the best out there. Thanks very much, Jordan. Well, the uh, fire is just uh, the latest. There's a lot to make matters worse. A lot to make matters worse in the Lytton area. Fatal crash has knocked out phone and internet service in the Fraser Canyon. It's closed Highway 1 near Hell's Gate. According to RCMP, they received a report of a man in crisis threatening to drive off a bridge. An officer found him driving on Highway 1, but the man failed to stop and instead drove over a steep embankment to his death. The IIO has now been called in to investigate whether police actions contributed to the accident. Now to breaking news of a roof collapse in Vancouver this afternoon that sent two people to hospital with injuries. Our Ted Field is live on the scene for us. Ted, this was a rooftop parking deck of an office building that collapsed. What do we know? Sophie, this is a very unusual looking building in terms of where it happened. It's on the Lloyd Highway area of, of East Vancouver where this collapse occurred. Now, if you look behind, it's a construction area. There are various construction uh, pieces of equipment on the roof of a building built into the side of the hill. Now, Vancouver Fire and Rescue say around 2 o'clock this afternoon, one of those pieces of equipment collapsed through the parking lot, that rooftop parking lot, collapsed into some office space down below. The businesses are down below. And then all of a sudden, everything sort of collapsed down into the lower parking lot that is at ground level. Now, so far, they say, BC Ambulance say two people have been taken to hospital. Their conditions are unknown, but there's still a very active search area. As a matter of fact, the Canada Task Force One Heavy Area Search and Rescue Unit is on the scene. Now, this is the unit that gets called out, say, if there's a building collapse during a disaster. They've been around the world dealing with disasters. You don't see them called out very often here in Vancouver. But they're doing a painstaking search in the building right now, checking to see if there's anyone missing, if there's anyone still trapped in the building. So uh, there's still a very active search area. As I say, the exact cause we don't know, but obviously one of the pieces of equipment went through that parking lot roof a rooftop area of this building. Uh, the other th concern for people that are trying to get around in this area is this is where Broadway and Lowheed intersect. Uh, it's a very busy road. It's been closed off since 2 o'clock this afternoon and it's being closed off for an undetermined period of time. So good idea to stay away from this area as this active search continues. Sophie? All right, thanks for that. Ted Field reporting for us this evening. Charges have now been approved in a tragic crash that killed a toddler in downtown Vancouver last year. Two vehicles collided last July at the intersection of Smythe and Hornby. One of the vehicles jumped the curb onto the sidewalk, hitting 23-month-old Ocean and her father. Catherine Urquhart reports. One year ago, a black Ford Escape collided with a black McLaren at Smythe and Hornby streets in downtown Vancouver. The escape mounted the sidewalk, hitting Michael Hiva, who was carrying his 23-month-old daughter, Ocean. Ocean died, and Michael suffered life-altering injuries. 
Now, criminal charges have been approved. A man has been charged with one count of uh, dangerous operation of a, a conveyance or a motor vehicle causing death and one count of dangerous operation of a conveyance causing bodily harm. That person's name is Sayed Moshevi Zadeh. He's a 30-year-old man uh, from uh, North Vancouver. The heartbreaking death led to a GoFundMe for the family, with people donating more than $80,000 to assist them. News of the charges is being welcomed by Ocean's mother, Star Joinson, who is in hospital expecting another child. We're pleased that these charges have come in place because it shows that people who are still operating their cars in an irresponsible manner or dangerous way will be held accountable. Suspect Mushevji Zadeh has an extensive criminal past. He was previously arrested for allegedly uttering threats and was the subject of a civil forfeiture claim. We cannot sue the person until he was criminally charged because of the new ICBC no-fault system. And we literally were not going to get any more money unless he was charged. So now that he is charged criminally and this goes through court, we can sue him. And we do plan to. Moshevji Zadeh is due to make a court appearance Friday morning. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. IHIT has been called in after a body was found in an industrial area of Burnaby. The body of a man was found near a vacant building on Norland Avenue at 9.45 this morning. According to police, the victim had injuries that are consistent with foul play. The victim hasn't been identified yet, but police say it looks like a targeted incident. Investigators are looking for any dash cam video taken in the area between Wednesday night and this morning. A big step forward today for the $4 billion Surrey-Langley SkyTrain extension. The province announcing major construction is set to begin this summer on extending the line from King George Station to 203rd Street in Langley. As the Madagahi reports, it's a trip that will take 22 minutes. I can also confirm from the business case in our planning today that this project will now be delivered by 2028 two years earlier than originally planned. With an exuberant smile, Thursday, BC's Transportation Minister Rob Fleming announced his government is ready to start building an extension connecting more sections of Surrey and now Langley City to Metro Vancouver's existing SkyTrain grid. Uh, we have formal approval of, uh, of the business case, which means that the project can uh, go out to tender for, uh, for, the, very, for the, uh, the construction. And uh, we have uh, a completion date uh, at uh, Langley, and we're working toward that, uh, so people can expect to see things uh, move relatively quickly. Some road work to prepare has already started. The Surrey to Langley SkyTrain extension will include eight new stations all along Fraser Highway. In an estimated 22 minutes, the line would pass through Fleetwood and Cloverdale crossing the municipal border into Langley City towards its final stop at 203rd Street. If you live within a 10-minute walking distance of one of these eight new stations, um, you're going to have uh, the ability to perhaps live without a car or infrequently use one and have public transit kind of be the anchor of your, of your commuting habits. The total cost of the 16-kilometer line is now officially approved at $3.94 billion. The province will pay 60%, leaving a $1.3 billion bill for the federal government and the remaining $228 million for local governments to cover. 
with Fleming boasting a $500 million in savings by building the project in one go instead of the previously planned two phases. A lot has changed since that uh, original uh, time estimate and the contemplation of having it as a two-phase project. While the accelerated timeline of the single-phase project done by 2028 means people in Langley will get their SkyTrain sooner, it comes with a broken promise to their neighbors in Surrey's Fleetwood neighborhood, who were once told they'd have the line by 2025. Emma Global News. COVID shots for kids under five. I'm encouraging all parents to register their children starting today. The imminent rollout for preschoolers in B.C. That's coming up next on the NewsHour. The death of 80s iconoclast and first wife of President Trump, Ivana Trump, later on the NewsHour. And the astonishing surprise revealed behind a Van Gogh painting. That's still to come tonight. Right now, though, B.C. health officials will start offering the COVID-19 vaccine to young children next month. Health Canada announcing the approval today for children aged six months to five years old. But as Richard Zussman reports, the vaccine uptake for older kids has not been overwhelming here in BC. Wait, almost over. This is the first COVID-19 vaccine authorized for, in Canada for this age group. On Thursday, Health Canada proving the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine for kids six months to five years of age. The modified dose will be available in British Columbia starting August 2nd and provided at specific health authority clinics across the province. They're child-friendly. People will have seen this in, the, in children 5 to 11. In order to book an appointment, children must be registered in the Get Vaccinated system. There are about 208,000 kids eligible following the approval, but there are worries about reluctance. There is a large social media disinformation campaign that has been going on since the start of this pandemic. And it's preying on the anxieties that a lot of parents have, because as parents, all we want to do is look after our kids and do what's best for them. Vaccination rates for 5 to 11 year olds has been lower than the general population. Province wide, just 58% of the group has one dose and 45% with two, especially low in the interior at 33% for two doses and the north at 26%. You know, one of the contributors to the lower uptake with young children is just that it's been logistically difficult for some families to schedule it, especially if you've got different multiple children with different schedules or maybe in different age groups and they're not eligible for the same vaccination. In the vast majority of places, those specialized clinics will not include vaccinations directly at child care centers or schools. And the province is not considering requiring vaccine to attend child care or school. It's not our view at this time that that would be the right way to address the issue of vaccination, um, for example, amongst children. Health Canada says the latest trials show an immune response in children six months to five years is the same as the vaccine for those 18 to 25. Just another layer of protection many parents have been waiting a long time for. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And let's take a look at our weekly COVID-19 numbers. We have 426 people in hospital in B.C. That's up 57. And 34 of those patients are in the ICU. There have been 22 deaths recorded over the past week due to complications of the virus. And we have 973 new confirmed cases. 
Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the COVID situation. Keith, let's talk about the vaccine for the youngest Canadians mm -hmm. uh, getting approval today. Do you think the uptake will be high considering, we, you know, it hasn't been for slightly older kids? Hopefully it'll be high, but unfortunately it will probably mirror the rates uh, we're seeing with the 5 to 11-year-olds. You saw Richard's numbers there province-wide. I want to focus now on the group that's closest to the 6-month to 4-year-olds, and that's the 5 to 6-year-olds. And you can see a real difference between their vaccination rate and kids who are slightly older. So just barely half the population of 5 to 6 as, as the first dose, and only 39% for the second dose. Significantly higher for the 10 and 11-year-olds, 64% and 52%. So likely the 6-month to 4-year-olds will probably closer adhere to that lower rate of 51 and 39 percent. We sort of hit a wall with vaccinating kids. These numbers really haven't changed materially for a number of months now. And as Richard pointed out, very low in the north and the interior. Back to the numbers you just showed, Chris, about the, the weekly numbers. Uh, I look back at two weeks. The so hospitalizations are up 91 percent over a two-week period. Uh, 53 percent increase in uh, in the, the new cases being detected out there. Uh, thankfully, the, the ICU cases are stable and are not increasing. Health Minister Adrian Dix today say all this points to the fact there's still a lot of COVID-19 circulating in our communities. It's significant when you look at these numbers that we're seeing stability in terms of those in critical care. So with the worst outcomes from COVID-19, but an increase in the number of people who are, hospital, who are in hospital, not hospitalized because of it, in hospital uh, with COVID-19. And that reflects an uptick of COVID-19 cases in the community. So the BA5 variant is now the dominant variant in BC, accounting for more than 53% of the cases. Uh, so the numbers are going up. The wastewater detection, the viral loads in wastewater are up significantly. The positivity rate continues to go up. Now we are in a seventh wave with BA5 being the dominant variant, more transmissible and potentially more resistant to vaccines. Uh, and the more troubling news coming from Europe today, the, the B275 variant, which is even more problematic than B5, has been, now been detected in Northern Europe originated in India. So it seems to be a lag between us in Canada and what we're seeing in Europe. Perhaps we're going to see that variant, that subvariant, emerge in BC over the summer months. So again, we're not out of the woods yet, which underscores the need to get vaccinated, particularly now starting August 2nd, kids age uh, six months to four years. I'm sure some parents will be happy uh, to hear about that. Thanks, Keith. Lots of evidence we are not out of it yet. And here's more. Random COVID testing for air travelers will restart next Tuesday. The feds are bringing it back for people flying through at airports in Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal and Toronto starting July 19th. They paused the testing back on June 11th as part of the strategy to transition to testing incoming travelers outside of airports. The new random testing will now either be completed at an in-person appointment at select locations or via a virtual appointment for a swab test. Um, the airport testing, I think, has the, the value that it will tell us what kinds of viruses are coming into Canada and what we might want to look out for. It's a kind of early warning. Uh, if there are new variants in the world that are, um, that are showing signs of being more severe or that will be a worry for Canada. More grim figures today from the coroner's service on the number of illicit drug deaths in B.C., more than 195 British Columbians died from toxic illicit drugs in the month of May. That's the highest number ever recorded in that calendar month and a 20% increase from April. A record has also been set in the first five months of the year with more than 940 deaths. Most of the deaths have been in Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal Health, 
but the highest death rate is in northern health, about 90 percent. Just over 90 percent of the people who died had fentanyl in their system. The chief coroner says the illicit drug supply in this province continues to be volatile and presents a significant risk to anyone who uses drugs. Coming up, Hockey Canada on thin ice. Why the organization is reopening its investigation into players suspected of sexual assaults. And how some made-in-BC technology gives the Webb Telescope capabilities that are out of this world. Clearing stages of a crash here in Port Coquitlam, westbound on the Murray Hill Bypass at Broadway. Traffic is currently blocked, but it is in its final clearing stages. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash on the Murray Hill Bypass. The federal government says it'll be providing over $35 million to support indigenous communities and residential school survivors ahead of the Pope's visit to Canada. The feds say more than $30 million will be going towards community-led travel for survivors and the rest to supporting indigenous groups in the three regions Pope Francis will be visiting. The papal visit is set to start in Edmonton later this month before moving on to Quebec City and ending off in Nunavut. It's expected Francis will be delivering an apology during his visit for the Roman Catholic Church's role in residential schools. Well, Hockey Canada says it is reopening its investigation into an alleged sexual assault involving members of the 2018 World Junior Team. It's just one of the steps taken by an organization hoping to fix its reputation and its finances. Kyle Benning explains. Hockey Canada is clearing the air and hoping fundamental change comes with it. In an open letter to Canadians, the sports body says it apologizes for not doing enough to address the alleged actions of some of its players or the toxicity in the sport. This after Ottawa froze Hockey Canada's public funding with no plans to reverse that decision soon. I'm going to wait for actions. Uh, before we do anything else regarding Hockey Canada. Last month, Hockey Canada Brass testified to a parliamentary committee regarding its handling of recent allegations. One stems from a 2018 incident in London, Ontario, where a woman says she was sexually assaulted by eight members of the gold medal world junior team. She filed a lawsuit with Hockey Canada for $3.5 million, which was later settled. Now, Hockey Canada admits not enough was done to address the incident and says it is putting actions in place. They include reopening the independent investigation into the 2018 allegations and making player participation mandatory with punishments for those who choose not to be part of the process. It will also look to implement mandatory sexual violence and consent training. Brock McGillis is one of the first openly gay pros in the game and offers inclusivity training to professional and minor teams. He questions whether Hockey Canada will simply create an online module that ultimately will have little impact. We need to humanize and tug at, at their heartstrings a little bit and have them realize that this is serious, it's real, and it's impacting people's lives. Some experts hope the remaining questions directed to Hockey Canada are answered. What happened that they didn't deal with it properly, that they got into a situation where they're dealing with a lot, like paying out a, a legal fee in a lawsuit? Um, I think those are the things the Canadians need transparency on. Hockey Canada says it will also seek oversight by the new Sport Integrity Commissioner, an office which launched in June. The commissioner is auditing Hockey Canada to ensure no public funds were used in the lawsuit settlement. Kyle Benning, Global News. Just ahead, a BC company light years ahead of the competition. Kid in a candy shop is the way that I feel right now. 
how it's helping bring distant planets into sharper focus aboard the Webb Telescope. we are at the Alex Fraser Bridge where traffic is in pretty decent shape both ways. Just some minor delays along the east-west connector through Richmond. Ren renewing your ICBC Auto Plan insurance online. Select your nearest Sussex insurance when prompted. For all online broker benefits, peace of mind and best rates, select Sussex Insurance today. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Alex Fraser Bridge. A renewed warning today from police about a scam that's seen a Vancouver senior bilked out of tens of thousands of dollars this week alone. In one case, a man claiming to be a police officer contacted a 61-year-old Kitsilano woman and convinced her to hand over $15,000 cash to help her nephew get out of jail. In another case, a Carousel woman in her 80s handed over $12,000 to two scammers who convinced her that her grandson needed bail money for a marijuana arrest. So far this week, Vancouver police have received the report, or five reports from seniors who've either been scammed or contacted by the scammers. So we really need to get this message out, not only to seniors, but to their family members um, who are asking to have uh, conversations within their households, um, just to, to raise awareness that this is happening. So far this week, Vancouver police have received five reports from seniors who've either been scammed or have been contacted by scammers, as I just mentioned. Well, it uh, turns out a crucial part of that NASA telescope that's been giving us eye-popping pictures of the cosmos was built right here in B.C. Kylie Stanton spoke with the scientists on Vancouver Island who made a West Coast contribution to the James Webb Telescope. More than a century ago, this technology opened up the universe and opened people's minds. 1918 was when it was completed. Scientists have been pushing the limits of what's possible ever since. Here we go. But this week, with the release of these pictures said to be worth a thousand words, they've been left almost speechless. Kid in a candy shop is the way that I feel right now. I'm honestly amazed that it works because uh, it's such a complex piece of equipment and so much has gone into it over so very many years. Canadian scientists can take some of the credit. Two critical components of the $10 billion James Webb telescope were developed at the Herzberg Institute of Astrophysics in Saanich. The fine guidance sensor allows the telescope to find and focus on objects, while the near-infrared imager and slitless spectrograph helps to study the object it finds. So it's like you being in Toronto and you're blinking at me and I can see it in Montreal. It is that accurate that the, our instrument has to work. And lift off. The whole process has been a practice in patience. The telescope was launched on Christmas Day, beginning its 1.5 million kilometer trip into space. James Webb now uh, has its array out. Nearly seven months later, what it captured along the way finally revealed. There's just so much going on here. It's so beautiful. But the real payoff is yet to come. Canada will receive a guaranteed share of Webb's observation time, 450 hours for scientists here to study the data collected over the next two years. One big project will be to look at the, uh, the early universe. We're going to look at galaxy clusters. And also we want to study exoplanet atmospheres. But it's the sense of renewed wonder that may have the most lasting impact as we move through this century and beyond. It provides the excitement, the interest, the hope that people need to carry on. I think the real, the real benefit is in the eyes of the people that learn from it. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria.
Well, the art world is buzzing over a previously unknown self-portrait by Vincent van Gogh that's been discovered hidden on the back of another painting. Experts at the National Galleries of Scotland made the find when the canvas was x-rayed just before an exhibition. The hidden portrait was covered by layers of glue and cardboard on the back of an earlier work called Head of a Peasant Woman. The Dutch artist would often reuse canvases to save money. Coming up, the horse whisperer of Maple Ridge. I don't know if there is a further career pivot. Why he left a stable job to join a stable job. I see what you did there. And the story behind today's super low tide. Well, we warned earlier it was a volatile situation, and we now have a breaking update about that wildfire burning west of Lytton tonight. The Thompson-Nicola Regional District has now issued an evacuation order for 24 addresses in Blue Sky Country, northwest of Lytton, west of the Fraser River, north of the IR-27 and south of the IR-9B along Spencer Road. The Lytton First Nation has also issued an evacuation order for the areas of Nohomine IR-23, Papam IR-S-27 and 27A, Lytton IR-27B, Papam Graveyard 27C, and Stryan IR-9 west of the Stein River. That's an evacuation order now issued for those areas, obviously an evolving situation, and we uh, will keep on top of it for you. Now, Donald Trump's first wife and mother of his three oldest children has died. The former president announcing that Ivana, the mother of Don Jr., Ivanka and Eric, passed away at the age of 73. The cause of death isn't known. The Czech Republic-born Ivana married Trump in 1977, and while their divorce in the 1990s was contentious tabloid fodder, the two both described their relationship as friendly in recent years. In his statement, Trump calls Ivana a wonderful, beautiful, and amazing woman who led a great and inspirational life. Well, more than 24 hours after a severe storm tore through parts of the state of Virginia, the cleanup continues. But all missing residents have now been accounted for. The storm saw fast-rising waters tear houses from their foundations, making it almost impossible for first responders to access those who needed help most. Global's Reggie Cicchini has more. The water rushed into Buchanan County, Virginia with such force, anything in its way met its match. Trees in the road, water's been in the road, and it's and houses in the road, and it's just a mess. This storm dumped 150 millimeters of rain late Tuesday, which snaked down nearby mountain ranges, spilling into rural towns. Uh, me and my son, my two-year-old son, were on an air mattress in the floor, and we were floating. In the flood's aftermath, a swath of damage carved through this county, impacting more than 100 homes. And while rescue operations were slow, on Thursday, all 44 residents unaccounted for had been contacted. A lot of that was just tracking folks down, making sure that it wasn't an access issue, which is what the case was in most of those. They weren't able to get out. Virginia's governor has declared a state of emergency. Our water line. That's how far up it got. That will deploy assistance and funding, allowing those affected most to start rebuilding. People lost everything. And it's, it's sad. That loss includes the ability to connect, 
power and cell service has been taken offline. This is a region prone to flash flooding. Last September, remnants of Hurricane Ida caused disastrous rainfall and mudslides, killing one person. Nearly a year later, those horrors played out again. That's the wall where the water was. Roads and bridges remain washed out, which will only add to delays in getting life uprighted, following a storm that experts say had a 1 in 1,000 chance of occurring. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. If you've been anywhere near the ocean this week, you probably noticed a lot more shoreline than usual. Due to lunar cycles and atmospheric pressure, tides right now on the south coast are lower than they've been in years. This has been the case since Monday with the low tide peaking around 10.30 this morning. And that's creating problems for some boat owners on Vancouver's north shore. Different ways of getting boats in the water. We'll use a telehandler because a lot of our boats are on trailers, but the boats that are on blocks, all of those boats need to be used. Uh, we need to use our sea lift, our big machine. And when we have low tides, that just doesn't happen. We can't lift a boat at a low tide or an extreme high tide. Unfortunately, this week we have a lot of low tides. Well, sports is coming up next with an update on that big collision in the Whitecaps game last night. Also tonight, saving wild horses. She was full of uh, lice and ticks. The BC trainer who can put a saddle on just about anything. All right, Squire is here now with a look at sports, Squire. Yes, indeed. The uh, Vancouver Whitecap players are getting roughed up like those kids on Stranger Things. They went into last night's game missing nine players against FC Cincinnati. Somehow Vancouver pulled off a 2-2 draw in that game, which was impressive considering the way things went. They also lost two more players during the game, Javane Brown and goalkeeper Cody Cropper. These two ran into each other. And how Cropper was able to continue for a little while longer before being replaced is incredible. Here's the collision. Look at Cropper. My goodness. Yeah, that is such Whoa! My goodness. And on the head for Cropper. I haven't seen anybody's head bend like that since Gumby went off the air. Uh, Javane Brown ticks, takes one right in the eye, and you can see his eye was all swollen. So I don't know if you'll see either of these two against Portland on Sunday. Cropper is in concussion protocol now, needless to say. Vancouver Canucks signed defenseman Christian Wolanin today to a one-year deal. It looks more like a player who will be in Abbotsford to start the year. He played a bit in the NHL during his career, but mostly in the minors. Yesterday, of course, the man beside me, Ilya Mikheyev, was the big free agent signing by the Canucks. Four years, $4.75 million per season. Now, Mikheyev has tremendous speed. He's one of the fastest guys in the NHL. He scored 21 goals last season, and that surprised a lot of people. But he says the sudden surge in scoring was not a one-year fluke. It's just that he began to get comfortable with hockey in North America. I work a lot in the summer before last, uh, last year because I understand what this means for me. Uh, I understand more uh, hockey in NHL. More, it's more experienced, you know. Uh, it's more experienced everything more uh, easy for me, game, practice, and I feel more comfortable. Three years ago, the Vancouver Canucks acquired Swedish forward Linus Carlson in a deal with the Sharks that saw Jonathan Dahlin go to San Jose. Now, the Canucks 
have waited patiently for Carlsen's game to mature. And this past year in Sweden, his game improved dramatically. Linus Carlsson did score 26 goals in the Swedish Hockey League last season, winning Rookie of the Year honors and signaling to the Canucks he is very much ready to make the jump to pro hockey in North America. There's always the adjustment for European players like speed of game and rink size in North America, but the Canucks and Carlsson are confident that won't be an issue. I think he, actually he will be better on the smaller ice surface where, where he, you know, the north-south game is more than the east-west uh, over in Europe and, and getting uh, quicker to the scoring chances. He does some things in traffic that, that uh, not a lot can. I think that'll really help his adjustment into the pro game over here. Um, he's not afraid of the hard area. Obviously, the way he can get the puck off his stick. Oh yes, that shot. It is world class and playing on the smaller ice means many more attempts at net. It's like you're so much close to the net. Uh, always when you get the puck in the offensive zone, you like you can shoot the puck and it's been a, been a scoring chance. Carlson turns 23 this November, so he's a little older than most Europeans who are trying to take that next big step to the NHL. And it must feel almost like home in Vancouver with a roster and management team full of Swedes, not to mention two of the best ever, Daniel and Henrik Sedin. It's awesome to have them around us. Uh, they are legends over in Sweden and over here. And um, yeah, they, they will. Uh, you can learn so much of them. So you just try to learn as much as I can. Carlson may still need some seasoning in the AHL at least to start the season, but the Canucks have high hopes Carlson can be a contributor sooner than later. He's an exciting player for us. I can't wait to just get him in and get him into training camp and in and around. Uh, that group, because I think as he's shown, when he gets around better players, it only elevates his game. Tiger Woods, Joel LaCava, first round British Open at St. Andrews. Tiger's second shot, he has to hit it out of a fairway divot. That's the problem. So is the wind, because that ball's not getting across the burns. Double bogeys. And a bit of a rough round, Tiger, although did get a couple of birdies in at one point. Halfway through the round, nine and ten, he birdie. This one sets up a bird, but he's six over par after 18 holes, which is 14 off the lead, held by Cameron Young. His buddy Rory McIlroy fared a lot better. This little chip will get him in birdie range. He's in second place at six under par. Shot of the day, Siwoo Kim. This isn't the shot I'm talking about, though. This is his third shot on the par 4 17th it stays in the bunker his next shot is from there this one though not only gets out of the bunker but goes in the hole gets a par minus three for the tournament there you go it all worked out in the end thanks squire that's the hard way to do it isn't it just ahead he went from computer programming to being a cowboy and now wild horses couldn't drag him away Bull has made it his mission to train wild horses so they can be adopted. Great name for a cowboy, isn't it? It's remarkable given that he was terrified of horses as a child. As Jay Durant reports on, This Is BC, overcoming that fear has allowed him to become something of a horse whisperer. 
Here's our newest member to our family. This is Annie. She wasn't in great shape Jeez. when she first arrived at Graham Bull's property. Incredibly scruffy, quite dirty, and she was full of uh, lice and ticks. In need of a little trim and a lot of training. So I'm going to keep her here for at least a year. Um, so that I can make sure I can put all the little bits and pieces in the framework that I believe a horse needs. Getting these wildies ready for adoption requires yeah, a lot of patience, sometimes just sitting. And now we wait. The touch of a blanket to start building trust. This is a talent Bull has been building for the past 10 years when he first started training. Now opening a stables to feral horses, saved from some harsh conditions. They've got their own food to find, they've got water to find, they've got to avoid predators. There's, there's videos of grizzlies chasing these things down. A bad riding experience left Bull terrified of horses as a kid. At age 36, he decided to face his fears, finally getting back in the saddle. To the right, please. That's when life took a turn. I just thought, that's kind of neat. You know, maybe, maybe I could work with horses a little bit. He left his job as a computer programmer to become Maple Ridge's own horse whisperer. I don't know if there is a further career pivot, but I used to just be tied to a desk. And back and forward. What's truly amazing is Bull taught himself how to do this, watching videos and a lot of trial and error. That's pretty good. This is Mr. Wild and Annie. He has a YouTube channel to help educate others and hopes to save many more horses. When they get rounded up, they've got two options. They either get adopted or they get sent to slaughter. Try the other side again. Nobody wanted Annie, but Graham took her in. And I was the last person to kind of say, well, I'll come get her. Now making sure this young filly ends up living on somebody's farm. Annie will absolutely find a permanent home. Is this the first time ever she's had anything on her? You did it. Good job. Jay Durant, Global News. Thanks to our IT department for keeping us on the air tonight. Good night, everybody. Good night, all.